It was probably the darkest part of my life. I was about to lose everything. As a single custodial dad, I only cared about one thing, and that was making sure my daughter was okay. Only, it wasn't gonna be okay. Financially, I was on runes. I had nothing in the bank and nothing coming in. Power company had said they were gonna turn off the lights. The landlord was about to evict me. I was at the end of my rope, I was done. And it was about that time that there was a bad storm also coming in, Sandy. Fact is, Sandy was gonna be good for me. It was gonna mask everything. If everything got wiped out, people wouldn't see what I was losing because I was a failure. A few years before I'd started a charity, I decided that I would use the charity and collect some money, help people who are in worse shape than me. That sounds really good, but the truth is I was actually thinking that there might be an angle for me on it too. I'm a con man and that's what I do and that's how I live my life and this was just gonna be another con. I went on Facebook, I had a few thousand friends, I sent out some emails and donations started coming in. A friend told me that a local church was doing some outreach and giving things away to people that were really decimated and that I should give them a call and maybe they could distribute some of the stuff. The next Saturday, went down to the church, threw a couple of people in the car and drove down to Staten Island. Those people had it bad. There was nothing left. It was like a war zone over there. The uh, pastor mentioned that he was gonna talk about my charity. In all honesty, my ego said, that's great, I'll take credit for that. I figured I would go to the service. I hadn't been into a church for a really long time. This whole Christianity thing was never gonna be for me. The way I lived my life, you can't be forgiven. The things that I did in my life, you don't get a second shot on. I actually believed that if I walked into a church, something bad was gonna happen to me. I found the seat furthest back in the corner. They talked about God, and they talked about love, and they talked about Jesus, and then it was over. They had mentioned my charity, I felt good. I walked out. I liked the music. I figured maybe I'd go back another time. I had met one of the pastors and we had started talking. He started telling me that I was forgiven and I started telling him he didn't know what he was talking about. And he told me that, you know, no, Christ died for your sins and it was free. But that was for other people still. I could never get next to Christ dying for my sins, not what I did. And he said, do me a favor, read Acts. So I went home and I read Acts. Acts is where this guy Saul came into the picture. Saul was me. That was my life. That was, that was it. God touched him and changed him and he became Paul and he became the guy that started a church. And if Saul could get forgiven, then I could get forgiven. And I started praying. I started believing and I started having faith. God was bigger than me. Actually, for the first time in my life, I realized there was something bigger than me. Christ had lived, Christ died for my sins, for the things that I didn't think could be forgiven. He forgave me. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful story. You know, just thinking, thinking about that, on Easter Sunday, the, the preconceptions, the expectations that we have can so easily cloud the way that we see the world. You know, Rob thought that there was no way 
that he could be forgiven. So he just didn't want to come to church. He didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus because he figured if he came to church, something bad was going to happen to him. And he didn't expect that he'd ever be able to find forgiveness, uh, yet he did because our God is a God who is not limited by our preconceptions. He's not limited by our expectations. And just being able to hear Rob share his story has been so encouraging to me. And a couple of us were talking about this a little bit earlier uh, in the week, and somebody said, you know what, you've got to share a little bit of your story too, because it dovetails so well with Rob. So I want to spend just a few minutes this morning sharing with you a little bit of the story of, of uh, how I and my family uh, came to faith in Christ many, many years ago. My story is different than Rob's, very different than Rob's, in fact, uh, but I can relate to his experience of God working in unexpected ways. Uh, those of you who know me, some uh, know that I grew up in a non-religious home. My father came from a Lutheran background. Uh, my mother was Jewish, and so we kind of had this religious detente in our family. You know, We would celebrate uh, Christmas and Hanukkah both, but they were secular holidays. Great way to get presents, you know. Um, a lot of fun with that. Passover and Easter, similar to Paul. You know, it was all about the Easter bunnies and the chocolate eggs. And, you know, that's actually Paul does celebrate the resurrection now as well, which I appreciate about, about uh, Paul, the guy who was uh, doing the announcements earlier. But for us, for me, uh, Easter was just about bunnies and chocolate and candy and that sort of thing. And Passover, I actually had no clue. I didn't understand Passover at all. All I knew was that it was this meal that we would go to, Passover Seder, that we would go to with my grandparents and my cousins, and we eat all this sort of weird food and do these weird things like hiding pieces of stale bread somewhere in the house. And if you have ever been to a Passover Seder, you know what I'm talking about when you're doing that. So from my perspective, I, I was an atheist in the most proper sense of the word, atheist A or ah, no God. There was no God. God was irrelevant to me in my growing up years. And that all changed when I was 13 years old. See, my father wasn't religious, but he was a very spiritual person. And uh, we grew up, he got us doing transcendental meditation. And some of you who are a little bit older may be familiar with that. It was, it's sort of an offshoot of Hinduism. So we would do transcendental meditation as a family. Uh, I had hair down to my shoulders. You know, people would say, how's your father let you have hair that long? It's like, he can't say anything about it because his hair is longer, you know. Uh, he would do astrology, literally, you know, and he was trying to teach me how to do astrology. He would smoke marijuana in the living room. You know, he had this great record collection, everything from the Beatles to Pink Floyd to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And again, I'm dating myself here, but hey, that's the way it is. It's good music then. I don't know what happened in, the, in recent years, but the old music was a whole lot better than it is uh, today. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop with the picking on uh, modern you know, stuff. So anyway, so this is my father. This is the background. This is what I grew up with. Uh, essentially, atheistic home, semi-Lutheran father, Jewish mother. It's all traditional some spirituality in our house, but it was as much, you know, the smoke that was going on as, as, as anything else. And that all changed uh, in a span of, of, of just a couple of months. Because, see, one day my father was trying to find a rock music station on the radio. He's just kind of flipping through the dial, listening, trying to find, you know, some new songs or whatever it is. And he runs into this Christian radio station. And I say that with a little bit of disdain in my voice because that's how I felt about it. This is like, 
most of these kinds of stations don't exist anymore. This is back then they used, you know, the King James Bible, which sounded like it was written in 1611 because it actually was, you know, and they used two instruments in the music that they played, a pipe organ and an electronic organ, you know. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, please, could we please get back to the Rolling Stones instead of all this stuff about Jesus and, you know, all that kind of thing. And I hated it. And it really, it really drove me up a wall. But over a period of days and weeks, and really over a period of about two or three months, my father is hearing over and over again the story about Jesus and how he died on the cross to pay for our sins and how he rose from the dead. And somewhere along the way, my father came to the point where he believed that Jesus had died for his sins and he'd risen from the dead. And this sort of dormant Lutheran faith that he had, had been resurrected. And my father became a follower of Jesus Christ. And over a period of three or four weeks, he started talking to me and my brother about Jesus. And I came to the point where I said, yeah, I believe this too. And it really was a miracle of God because I had absolutely no interest in Jesus up until that point. But God worked in my heart and I've never looked back. And I'm grateful for the way that he worked in my heart. My brother professed faith in Christ as well. But then there was my mother, my Jewish mother. My Jewish mother, which in case you're not catching it, I'm emphasizing that my mother, by the way, was Jewish. She grew up in a home where she was told that the Jews killed Jesus. That was what her friends who she went to high school with said, oh, you're Jewish, you killed Jesus, you Jews killed Jesus. My mother, my Jewish mother, who grew up spending time with her relatives who had tattoos on their arms that they had gotten, sorry, in Nazi concentration camps. This is my mother, my Jewish mother, who looks at this whole thing and she says, what is with this Jesus stuff? You know, the, the religious detente the Cold War, it wasn't even really a war, was broken in my family. So my mother started reading the Old Testament. She had never really read the Bible. She was reading what, what Jews would consider to be their scriptures. We as Christians see that as the Old Testament. So my mom starts reading the Old Testament beginning, right at the beginning in the book of Genesis, and she starts praying that God would show her through the Old Testament that Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah. Because see, this is what my father was trying to explain to her. And my mom started going to church with us as well because she wanted to make sure that my brother and I weren't being too much you know, indoctrinated into this Christianity thing. And so what she's hearing is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And she says, no way. So she starts praying that God would show her through the Old Testament that Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah so that she could save my brother and me from this horrible fate of Christianity. Now, in order to understand the significance of what my mom was doing, I want us to look at a passage in the New Testament, a section of the New Testament, something that occurred actually on that first Easter Sunday 2,000 years ago. This is probably shortly after lunchtime, so it's the afternoon when Jesus had risen from the dead. And I want to pick up the action there because it's going to help us to understand the significance of what my mom was doing. Luke chapter 24, 
Luke, the, the gospel writer, says, now that same day, that Easter Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, two of them meaning two of Jesus' disciples. They were talking with each other about everything that happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing them, recognizing him. He asked them, what, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And watch the irony of this situation, right? Jesus, who has just risen from the dead, walks up to these guys who have met him before. They don't recognize him, and they look at him and say, don't you know what's going on? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's been going on? They think that he's clueless. They think that he's ignorant, but he knows exactly what's going on. In fact, he knows more than they do. So if anybody is clueless, if anybody is ignorant, it's Cleopas and his friend. The, the story continues. What things, Jesus asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. I mean, think about this for a second. These guys had high expectations for Jesus, right? When he was alive, they expected that he was the Jewish Messiah, that he was going to be their savior, that he was going to be the one who's going to free them from Roman domination. Because at this time in, in world history, Israel was under domination. They were ruled by this conquering power, Rome, that had come in and taken over the land of Israel. And so they're looking for someone to save them, someone to deliver them, from Rome, and they expected Jesus to be this guy, to be their Messiah. But then their leaders, their religious leaders, had actually handed Jesus over to their enemies, to the Romans, so that Jesus could be crucified. How could this guy be their Messiah if he were dead? They continue on. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. Did you catch that? They didn't see Jesus, so they didn't believe that Jesus was alive. If you step back and think about it, if you're at all familiar with the story of what happened that first Easter Sunday morning, this group of women go to the tomb carrying spices because they're going to embalm Jesus' body. You don't embalm someone whom you expect to be alive. You embalm a dead body. Jesus' followers did not expect him to rise from the dead. In their minds, that wasn't gonna happen. And so when these guys interact with Jesus, they don't realize that it's Jesus in part because they didn't expect Jesus to be alive. Nobody expected Jesus to have risen from the dead. No one had yet seen him. Yes, the tomb was empty, but they figured someone had taken the body away and they were confused and they didn't know what happened and they didn't yet believe that Jesus was alive. So finally, verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. 
How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses, book of Genesis, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's like Jesus is saying to them, hello, wake up, guys. Where have you been? Didn't you go to Hebrew school? Didn't you learn? You know, Moses, all the prophets talked about the Messiah, and they said that the Messiah is going to have to suffer, and he's going to die, and he's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to enter into glory. Where have you been? How are you missing this? See, the reason that they were missing this is because in the first century, Jews didn't see that there was going to be a suffering Messiah. They liked the idea of a reigning Messiah. They liked the idea of a conquering Messiah. But they didn't like the idea of a suffering Messiah. So their expectation, their preconception was that the Messiah would never suffer. The Messiah would never die. And so when Jesus suffered and when Jesus died, from their perspective, there's no way that this guy could be their Messiah. And so they didn't expect him to suffer. They didn't expect him to die. And they didn't expect him to rise from the dead. But Jesus' point to them was they should have because their own scriptures clearly predicted that the Messiah was going to be, that he was going to suffer, he was going to be crucified, and then he was going to rise from the dead. And they shouldn't have been surprised at that. In fact, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah, and many of those talk about him suffering and dying. And so they should have known this, but they didn't because their mindset was in a completely different direction. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. And then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and when he opened the scriptures to us. So they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11, those are the, the remaining 11 disciples, and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord has risen. He's appeared to Simon, that's Peter. He's appeared to Peter. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And they celebrated because at this point then they all believed that Jesus had risen from the dead because he had appeared to them, because he'd opened their eyes that they could see him for who he was. He blew past their preconceptions. He confounded their expectations and he showed them that he was indeed their Messiah, the Savior of the world. So they run back to Jerusalem. They tell their friends, and they celebrate on that first Easter Sunday evening. Jesus used the Old Testament to show these two guys that he was the Jewish Messiah. Contrast that with my mother who starts reading the Old Testament so that she could prove to my brother and me that Jesus is not the Jewish Messiah. The problem for my mother is that God does not always do what we expect him to do. 
So she's reading through the Old Testament, and the day came when she read a promise that God had made through one of the Old Testament prophets, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So my mother read these words and she remembered something that she had heard in church. Because remember, my mom is going to church with the three of us during this period of time just so that she can know this propaganda that, that, that's being spewed toward us. But she remembered something when she read these words from Jeremiah. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, said something like this. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He said that at the Last Supper, which was a Jewish Passover celebration. So my mom hears Jeremiah talking about this new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. She connects that with Jesus' words where he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. She puts these two things together. And that night she goes to bed she has this horrible nightmare that she had killed her parents because a Jew becoming a Christian is effectively, from her generation's perspective, it's killing your parents. She wakes up the next morning and she says, I believe Jesus is my Messiah. Jesus is who he claims to be. Jesus is my savior. And that day, was Sunday, April 14th, 1974, which just happened to be Easter Sunday that day. And today, my mother is one of the most devoted followers of Jesus whom I know. And she's praying, praying for me, praying for us this morning, that as we're talking about who Jesus is and what he's done and how he's risen from the dead, that we would be overwhelmed by his incredible love, by his incredible grace, by the forgiveness that he offers to us through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection. We have a God who just blows so far past our expectations. Don't let your preconceptions keep you from seeing Jesus for who he really is. Don't let your expectations keep you from seeing what he's doing in your life. My hippie father never expected to find Jesus through a radio station. My Jewish mother never thought that she'd become a follower of Jesus by reading the Old Testament. Rob Gallucci from the video never, never imagined that he could find forgiveness anywhere, especially in a church. The disciples, they never expected that Jesus would be crucified. Nobody thought that Jesus would rise from the dead. But here we are, 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, and what are we doing here this Sunday morning? We're celebrating this 
Jewish carpenter who, was suffer, who suffered, who died on a Roman cross, and then who three days later rose from the dead. Our God is absolutely not limited by our expectations. So don't let your expectations, don't let your preconceptions keep you from seeing who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. If you want to grow, take a next step in your understanding of who Jesus is, what he's doing in your life, how you can have a relationship with him, how you can grow in your relationship with him if you already have a relationship with him. Consider signing up for the project. Paul mentioned it earlier in the service. The project is this four-week interactive conversation, really. It's kind of a combination of large group and small group interaction. We ask questions like, who is God? Who did he create us to be? What does it mean to have a relationship with him? How can we have a relationship with him? What needs do we have? How has God met our needs? What's our relationship with one another supposed to be? Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, if you're just starting off in your spiritual journey, if you're kind of like I was, if you're like my father was, you know, many years ago, great opportunity to ask some questions in a non-judgmental atmosphere. Talk with people who are where you are, some who are a little bit further on down the road and grow in your relationship with God and explore more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you've been a follower of Jesus your entire life, this is going to help you to take a next step and to grow in your depth of understanding of the incredible love that God has for us and how we can grow in our relationship with him and how we can help other people to come to know him and to grow in a relationship with him. So if you're at all interested in that, let me encourage you, stop by the info center. The folks there would love to tell you more about it. Grab me after the service. I can tell you more about it. You find details on our website as well, and that's where you can sign up for it. So again, seriously consider taking four weeks, four Saturday evenings, a couple hours each Saturday evening, and going through the project with us. Something else that you might find helpful is what Rob Gallucci did. Rob started reading the book of Acts, trying to find out more about Jesus, more about what he had done, and more about how he had worked in the lives of other people. So whether you're a believer in Jesus or a skeptic, there are believers in Jesus in the book of Acts, and there are skeptics in the book of Acts. Read through the book of Acts in the New Testament. There are 28 chapters, four weeks, one chapter a day. Great opportunity. Put yourself in the shoes of the people in the book of Acts. What was it like for them to encounter followers of Jesus? What was it like for them to ask questions? What was it like for them to see God work in their lives and then lives of other people? God used the book of Acts to help Rob to come to faith in Jesus. He's used it to help thousands and thousands and thousands of other people to grow in their relationship with Christ. So whether it's the project, whether it's reading through the book of Acts, or whether it's reading through the Old Testament and asking God to help you to see Jesus even in the Old Testament, let me encourage you, take a step to grow in your journey with Jesus. And don't let your preconceptions, don't let your expectations keep you from seeing Jesus for who he really is and seeing how he's working in your life to help you to become more and more like him. I'm gonna ask the band to come on back up now. They're gonna lead us in a closing song. And uh, as they're coming up, I'd like to pray for us. So would you please join me in prayer?
Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that today, 2,000 years after you lived and suffered and died, we get to be together this morning and celebrate your resurrection. I thank you that your resurrection did not depend on the faith of your followers, that it did not depend on their preconceptions, that it did not depend on their expectations. I thank you that you're a God who blows right past our preconceptions, who confounds our expectations, and who works in us to grant us that faith to believe in you. And Father, I pray for myself, I pray for all of us here, pray that you would strengthen our faith in you. I pray that you would strengthen our love for you. I pray that we would have a greater and greater desire to know you, to celebrate who you are, to celebrate the incredible gift that you've given us in, in your son. And as we do, I pray that that would overflow in joy in our hearts. And I pray that as others see that joy and that love in us, they'd be drawn to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.